Good evening. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we can gather together on this snowy night to sing your praises and to share uh, together the words that you have spoken to us. I pray that you would help me, uh, the preacher, and us, all the listeners, to be strengthened by your Spirit and to find a great joy and peace and purpose in the gospel tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's great to be back at Erity Baptist Church tonight, and I want to say congratulations on braving the elements and making it here. Um, I'm Canadian. This is what we're used to. We, we, we grow up in igloos and with dog sleds and no electricity and all that stuff, but here in, in civilized and, and uh, normally little wetter Scotland, uh, you, you have to be very innovative to manage snow, so congratulations and, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to be here with you. It's, it's been a blessing just to, to feel like family with you and, and to get to share a few Sunday nights here with you. You'll, you'll be happy, though, to know after, after those comments about um, weather that it was, it was I, the Canadian, who trashed my car the last time it snowed. And uh, thankfully, I had good insurance and they they picked up a new one for me, but that's that was my claim to claim to fame uh, in in the, the the terrifying Scottish snowy weather. I want to share with you a story just before I come to read the scripture that introduces the message tonight. We're going to be looking, God willing, over, over the next few weeks at some some of the themes in Ephesians, and we're going to be in chapter two tonight. I want to tell you about a friend named Andrew, and Andrew is, is down in Oxford right now studying, but uh, Andrew, who's been a friend for many years, almost didn't become my friend because he almost died. When he was in his late teens, he was skiing in, uh, in British Columbia, snowboarding, and he was there with, with his, his dad and his brother up on Mount Baker. and. When, when uh, he disappeared, and he, he disappeared because he had gone past an out-of-bounds marker. He thought it would be fun to hit the virgin turf there, and he, he got lost. And his father reached the bottom of the run and realized his son was missing and organized a search party. And some time later, he was found, but he was stuck in a, in a crevice. He had actually dropped uh, 60 feet and, and landed and was absolutely unmovable and by the time they found him he was very cold they had to dig through a wall of snow to get to him by that time he was hypothermic he was unconscious his skin was blue and his pulse was barely perceptible and when they got him to the the ambulance it had been seven hours that he'd been missing and and trapped his heart stopped on the way to the hospital five times and when he arrived there his core temperature was 80 Fahrenheit but a series of miracles was underway from from finding him to being able to get him out to the right person being in, in the ambulance to restart his heart and bringing his core temperature back up and in all of this incident he he didn't have a broken bone and he was released basically unharmed shortly after. And, and a week later, he was going for a walk around the block with his dad. And he said, Dad, I wonder, I think 
somehow I, I have been saved for a purpose. And at that point, Andrew wasn't a Christian, but he realized there was something at work. And he actually, soon after that, was invited to a Christian camp where he heard the gospel, he received Christ, and he be began to discover his purpose, which in, in his case has been um, becoming a pastor and, and now studying to do a PhD in, in, in philosophy with, with the goal to serving the church from an academic stage. And he's a, he's a dad and a father to three kids, and God's using him in some, some neat ways. And this story illustrates what we're going to see in today's text, that we're, we are all part of a story where we were trapped, where we've been rescued, and where we've been commissioned with a purpose. And if you'll turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to read that together and then reflect on what it means and how it applies to our lives. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. This is a letter by uh, an apostle, which is, is uh, in some ways like a missionary who helped to start new churches. And he had a, a burden to write a letter to the church in Ephesus where he had served for some time. And he's teaching them and, and reminding them of some great truths. And in Ephesians chapter 2, he talks about where they came from and what God did and why he did it. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who was rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of God. And tonight I want to look with you at how were we trapped? How were we rescued? And what did God rescue us for? We're going to first look at this idea that you and I were trapped. Now, Kent Hughes has, has said that throughout history, there are three basic views of human nature. Either humans are, are well, humans are sick, or humans are dead. The biblical view is that humans are not well, and they're not simply sick, but that at our, our deepest place of being, we're dead. Without Christ, we're dead. This is what it says in verse 2. Take a look. As for you, you were, it doesn't say well, it doesn't say sick, it says you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Where do we find this taught elsewhere? Well, in, in Genesis chapter 2, God warned Adam about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
the, the power to, to choose what would be good and evil for himself. He said, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But they ate it in Genesis 3, and they didn't die. Their bodies continued on. They, they were talking and walking and making clothes. and all. But spiritually, they died. And that was symbolized by them being kicked out of Eden. And, and Jesus comes into a world where we need life. And he says in John 5, 24, the person who believes in him has passed from death to life. In Ephesians, it, it calls us, in, in chapter 4, verse 18, it says we're separated from the life of God. And that's the essence of spiritual death, is that we do not have the life of our Creator in us without Christ. A person uh, can be very much alive as, as a, an athlete, as a, a scholar, as a business person, as a laborer, but spiritually, you can be dead. You're not capable of, of recognizing God's presence, of, of sensing His love and cherishing it, of, of enjoying the, the fellowship of God's people, uh, having a hope for eternity. And, and it's why it's because of our transgressions and sins, it says that we were dead. And for some of us, if we are Christians here tonight, this is something we, we, we often, we've forgotten. It was so long ago, or God has done so much since then. But he reminds the Ephesians, and he reminds us, remember where you came from. And as you minister as missionaries to people in Airdrie Church, recognize that you're asking God to raise the dead, that you cannot bring someone to Christ on your own, but we serve a God who has raised us from spiritual death, and he can do it for others. What is, is it about? What's going on in this death? It talks about transgressions, which is a violation of the law, and sin, which is rebellion. And it says, in which you used to live. And the, the picture there is, is of a, a lifestyle. That the, the language is, is of walking, which speaks of a way of life. And he says, this isn't just a mistake that you made now and then, but this was your, your whole lifestyle was transgressions and sin. And we were enslaved, we were trapped in three ways. And we see here the world, and we see the flesh, which is our sin nature, and we see the devil. He says, uh, you followed the ways of this world. And, and literally, it's, it's the age of the world. And when we think of, of, of an age, we're not talking about someone's age, but in, in kind of the Lord of the Rings fashion, uh, a, an age, an era of time. And we're in this era of time which is called the age of the world from the time Adam and Eve ate the fruit until the Lord Jesus comes back and finally and fully establishes his kingdom. It's an age where there's this world system that operates separate from God. And every, every billboard we read, every newspaper we look at, every every workplace we go to, as a rule, these are, are firmly embedded in that world system and, and influences everything that goes on. It's a spirit of the age that's opposed to God. And this world, as you probably will notice as you enter this week, it has its own form of wisdom, it has its own moral standards. And it's under judgment. And 
And we follow that. Have you ever heard of a, a little rodent called the lemming? They, they're known to, to travel in, in huge packs, and they're kind of like sheep. You know, when one sheep runs in a certain direction, the other sheep all run with it. And lemmings are known to do this, except uh, tragically, uh, sometimes it's, it's in cliffy areas. And one lemming runs towards a cliff, they all go off the cliff. And that's, in a way, the, the life that we were in without Christ. We were like lemmings. And additionally, we were following the ruler, it says, of the kingdom of the air, which is uh, another label for the devil, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And this term ruler is used to describe Satan in, in the Gospels. For example, in Mark 3, he's called the ruler of demons. And this is an important theological term. It, it comes up very early in, in the story of the Bible, the idea of ruling, because God gave Adam and Eve the responsibility to rule on earth, uh, but we fell into sin, and so it's as if Satan has usurped that rule and taken what was rightfully something that belonged to humanity, to you and me, and he is God's enemy. And if you talk to the average Scottish person today about the devil, they're, they're, they're probably going to do one of two things, I think. You, you can shake your heads no or nod your heads yes if you think, but I, I think they're going to either deny the supernatural, just say there's no such thing as a devil or God or anything, or they're going to assume anything spiritual is probably good. It's pretty neutral. It's all in one big pot. Spirituality. Have you come across that? Those two responses? But the Bible teaches differently. It says regardless what the world currently thinks, there is an evil spiritual force. It's at work in unbelievers, and it's, it's real. Satan and the demons that work for him, they, they tempt people, they tell lies about God, they seek to destroy relationships, marriages, in workplaces, in schools, in, in, in governments, in nations. Uh, the enemy opposes the work of God. He's trying to stop what God's purpose for this church and for your life. But do you know that his activities are limited by God? And his ultimate defeat was guaranteed when Jesus died. And yet, he's currently active, it says, in those who are disobedient. And that speaks of our sinful nature, this disobedience. We were characterized by living in disobedience to the Creator, who alone has the right to tell us what our life is for. Now, if you went uh, onto the streets of Airdrie tonight or tomorrow, and you ask people, uh, finish the sentence, people are basically like bad, good, something else, probably people generally say people are basically good. Now, we make mistakes sometimes, and you've got one or two, you know, bad apples, but people are basically all right, basically good. When it says that we were by nature deserving of wrath and we were gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts, disobedient, don't you think that's, that's rather offensive in our culture to say these things? Uh, but we have an intrinsic bent, and it's not to good, it's to evil. There's a story of a little girl who understood this. She had uh, pulled her brother's hair, 
and kicked him in the shins and he went crying to his mom and mom came and she said, okay, Susie, uh, you know, why did you pull your brother's hair and kick him in the shins? And Susie said, well, the devil made me pull his hair, but uh, kicking him in the shins was my idea. And she knew, even though there's a devil, she knew she herself is a little sinner. And, and that's all of us. And whether it's my friend who, who, who had a, a greedy landlord who stole her damage deposit, and, and she was a, a widow struggling, and, and yet she got robbed by her landlord. That's evil. Or, or whether it's the, the porn epidemic that's rampant, and, and uh, you may even feel, feel trapped by something like that and need, need some help um, to get free. Or, or whether it's just the selfishness that broods in my heart every morning when I wake up. There's, there's this sin nature that we, we fight, even in Christ, and that, that enslaved us when we were without Christ. And Paul says that it's deserving wrath, and that's what sin brings. And yet, we get to this, this transition here where he says, in spite of what we were, in verse 4, against this dark and depressing background, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And to think about this contrast, let me tell you a story. When I got my, my driver's license, and I was 16 years old, I had studied, I had practiced, and I showed up for the road test with a terrible, terrible cold. But there was no way I was going to miss this appointment. I needed to get my driver's license. I, it was one of those rites of passage. And so I took the test. I was not in good form. I did okay, but I made some mistakes. And when we pulled back into the parking lot where we'd started, the examiner turned and looked at me, and he said, I would like to fail you. However, you didn't do quite badly enough for me to fail you, so I'm going to have to give you a pass. Not exactly a flattering way to start your driving career, but it was good enough for me. But what do we have here in Ephesians? We have not just you know, a few mistakes, but there's this language of sin and condemnation and transgression and following the devil that's just stacked up against us. And it's not that we've just done poorly on the test for heaven, but we've We've driven and lived recklessly, selfishly, illegally, destructively. But so unlike my examiner's response is God's response. How does God act towards those who clearly don't deserve what they need? It says in so many different ways. It talks about His great love for us. It talks about God being, verse 4, rich in mercy. And in the end of verse 5, by grace you have been saved. And it speaks again about his grace in verse 7 and in verse 8 because this grace is so staggering and it's a kindness that says, see verse 7, that's going to be demonstrated and expressed throughout the ages to come, the incomparable riches 
of his grace and kindness to us. And so let, let's think about what he's done because it's, it's in thinking about what Jesus did for you that awakens you to love him again, to praise him, to offer him everything. It's not because you should live for him or you should praise him, but it's because he first loved you that you love him. What is grace? What is grace anyway? It's a word that in some ways is kind of all over the map today. We can, we can talk about uh, a gracious, uh, a highland dancer, the way she dances with grace. Or at a meal you might say grace. Uh, if you take out a loan, there might be, before you have to pay any interest, a grace period. So we have this, this word in our common language, but what does it mean biblically? Is it, it speaks about a gift, something that is free. And these other words in the text help to unpack that where it speaks of mercy. It reminds us, do you know in, in the Old Testament, if you read the book of Judges, how Israel turned against God and, and absolutely destroyed their relationship with him. And then they said, oh God, we've blown it. We're sorry. And what does God do? He has mercy. He gives them what they do not deserve. And that's what God gives to us, mercy. And it speaks of his love with which he loved us. And it's a unique phrase. We see a very similar phrase on the lips of Jesus in John 17, 26. And there he's, he's talking about the love with which the Father loves him. And that, that the world, that, that believers would know that love that, they ha that he has for the Son, that he loves believers with that same love. And, and God has expressed his love for Jesus now as his love for us. It's not some second-rate love, but it's including us in that, in that love. And grace is a gift of that kind of mercy, of that kind of love that we don't deserve. And I, I want to encourage you this week, as you uh, perhaps feel unworthy at times, or as you, you recognize yourself making mistakes or, or sinning, uh, sometimes you're reminded of your past. Remember that God's response to sin was not, boy, I guess I, I might have to pass you anyways, because he couldn't, and it wasn't to give us what we deserve, but it was incredible amounts of love and kindness and grace. And he saved us. He rescued us. And this echoes the Exodus, where Israel enslaved and crying out and, and, and having to make bricks without straw in Egypt and just suffering, God came and rescued them and gave them their own identity and gave them a land and made them uh, his people, made a covenant with them. And he rescued and saved us. And the picture there is of, of permanence. This is what we are now. And we've been joined together with Christ, uh, raised with him, seated with him, with Christ. And he's done this in order to, it says, to display his grace in the coming ages. That every time you, you look at one another, you don't just see that, that beautiful or that handsome person. You see that, but you see something else. You see a display of God's grace. And it's a bit like in, in the, the, the high school I went to, back in, in Comox, British Columbia, you, you went in the front entrance and one of the first things you saw was a glass display case in which were trophies school teams had won over the years. 
and it was a, a showcase of these achievements. And that's the imagery here. In ancient temples such as the ones you would have found if you lived in Ephesus, you would go in and you'd see it was decorated with trophies of successful military battles, and they, they, they went to thank their gods for this. Well, the temple is the church, and in fact, the universe is God's temple in Ephesians. And, and from now until eternity in the future, we are those trophies in God's temple, displaying his victory, that he came, he gave the devil a black eye, he, he raised corpses to be alive and to live for their God, and he gave us hope and a purpose. And I want to encourage you as a church to make sure you share your stories, because that's how we display in, in some part those trophies of, of grace that we are. And to ask one another, how did you come to faith? Or tell me something the Lord did to, to reveal to you how he loves you. Or what has God done in your life in the last year? And tell those stories. You're not boasting about yourself. You're pointing to how great the Lord Jesus is. And so not only have we been rescued from where we were trapped, but we've been saved and rescued for a purpose. Just as my friend Andrew, who was trapped and, and rescued, realized there must be a purpose, and he's finding it. Why were you saved? Uh, we're going to look at that in a moment, but first I just want to highlight a, a key thought in verses 8 and 9, because sometimes we think that, yeah, God, God does his part. He sent Jesus, but I've got a part to play too. And there must have been a struggle for some in Ephesus with understanding how free salvation is, because he drives it home and says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And he's repeating himself here because this is such an important point uh, for all of us to get, that we're saved by grace. And grace is, hear this, grace is the opposite of human effort. Grace is the opposite of human effort. How does he say this? In three ways. First, he says it's through faith. And faith is, if you're a beggar and you've got your cup out because you need someone to give something to you, faith is putting that cup out. It's, it's the open cup, the open hand of the beggar saying, I, I cannot do a thing myself. I need you to do it for me, God. And it's opposed to any work that you could point to and say, I've done this, so now you owe me. And in the New Testament, this language of faith is so central. It's believing in something, in someone, and what he did for you. That Christ obeyed for you, that Christ satisfied what God expects a righteous person to do. You were supposed to do it. You failed, and you continued to, and I continued to, but Christ fulfilled it. And Christ then died in your place and paid for your sin. And it's faith in him. And it says, this is not of yourself. It's the gift of God. The whole of your salvation. 
including the faith to believe. What is it? It's the gift of God. So it's faith, it's a gift, and finally, it's, it's not by works, he says, just to drive it home so that no one can boast. Our efforts to do something for God, to do something spiritual, to, to be a good person, have no bearing whatsoever on God accepting us. The only basis on which God accepts you tonight and tomorrow and the next day is Jesus' obedience and Jesus' sacrifice. And that is what gives us freedom. That is what gives us joy. And we have been saved by, by grace. And then we see that though we are not saved by works, the life he's put in us leads us into good works, which we do, again, not to earn God's favor, but to display who he is in our world and to honor him through our lives. And there's this pattern in Ephesians where who are you before Christ and what did he do and what did he do it for? What happens? What's the transformation? And this is one of those places where that pattern plays out. What does it say in verse 10? For we are God's handiwork or, or God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And the emphasis is that we're his. And these words where it says we're his handiwork and created, they both point away from us and looking to ourselves to God. He's the one who's making you something beautiful. And I, I love the word handiwork there because it's in, in Greek it's the word poema. And you can hear our English word poem in it. And it actually means poem or another work of art or a work of architecture. We are something God has made, God's poem, God's creation, to do his good works. There's a story about Michelangelo the artist, and he was chipping away at this huge block of marble. Someone said, what exactly are you, are you doing there? And Michelangelo said, I'm liberating an angel from this stone. I'm liberating an angel from this stone. And, and we might sometimes picture ourselves a bit like that block of marble. We think, well, what have you got to work with, God? But what he's done for you in Christ, what he's in the process of making, he's liberating an angel from this stone. And when it speaks of him creating there, the verb created throughout the New Testament, it speaks about God's original act of creation. But here, we are the new creation. And all things are being made new. And God is beginning with the church. What God is doing in your life, every little change, every time when you, like last year today, you didn't have that patience that you had today, or last, last year this time you didn't have that same amount of, of hope and trust that you have today, every little bit of growth in you is not just a little bit of growth in you, but it, it's, it's a pointer because it's part of the new creation. It's a pointer to the fact that God is not only making your life new, but he's going to make every single part of the cosmos new. A whole universe and a whole planet that lives for his praise alone, that reflects his glory. He's doing that. And as we discover God's purpose, that we're saved for good works. Again, those good works that God made you to do, they're different 
than for, for you than they are for the person across the row from you or, or, or the person in the next church. We're each uniquely made, but we're all called to do works that reflect what has Jesus done for us, that he's rescued us and that he wants to rescue others, that he's a God who, who loves sinners, that he's a God who's making broken things into things that work right. And whether that's in uh, the church or whether that's in where you spend most of your hours, in your, your home, in your job, where most of our good works get done, recognize that God has prepared those for you, that he's there, and he is doing something with your life of incredible significance. And sometimes it seems small. And yet if God has prepared it, how could you call it small? How could you think that person you're going to serve tomorrow is insignificant? How can you think that your life is small? It's part of God's handiwork. And whether you're bringing a meal to a neighbor, learning to love your wife, or how to respect your husband, how to treat your employees, or honor your boss, learning to hold your tongue or speak a word of encouragement, uh, taking a step to promote the unity of the church. All of these are themes in Ephesians that reflect the good works God's called us to do. And through every little step, he's recreating, ultimately, all things. I want to invite you as we finish to remember God rescued you. What he rescued you from? Or, or if you haven't taken a step of faith in Jesus, that's all it is is crossing a line of faith to say, I'm dead in my sin. I can't save me, but Jesus can. I trust him. And he takes it from there. He rescues you. And if you haven't, please take that step tonight. And for, for those of us who know Jesus, I want to encourage you. Remember, despite how you failed, God loved you. And that love can never be taken away. God has rescued you for a reason. And he's going to lead you in that this week. Ask him to show you. And he undoubtedly will. And give him all the praise. Because it is not ultimately about ourselves. But it's in him that we boast. And it's him that we live for. Can we pray together? Father, we thank you tonight. That we are part of your family. That we, though we were dead. Though we were living so opposite from your plan. You loved us. You rescued us. And you've given us a purpose. And Lord, I pray that you would give each of us an assurance that that love was not just for the next person, but it was for me. It was for each one of us personally. Lord, I pray it would be not just a knowledge that occupies uh, space in our minds, but that it would be a truth that floods and overwhelms our hearts, that God loves me, that God is for me. And Lord, I pray that we would understand that every one of our lives matters, that every moment you've given us, every dollar you've placed at our disposal, every uh, skill that you've laid uh, at our fingertips, uh, every opportunity matters so much because it's how we live out our life as your workmanship and help us to see you leading us and see you using us to build your kingdom here in Airdrie and here in Scotland. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.